Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Erica. And I'm Abby. And today, I'm going to be telling you about the Robeson family. Today, I am drinking black coffee from Panera. And I am drinking club soda, because we're lame, still. If you listen to the episode next week, it'll be the same thing, because we recorded them together. We did. And they're both about families. And there might be one other similarity that you guys will notice between the two, but you got to listen to this week and next week to figure that out. So pour yourselves a cup or a glass or a mug or a jar of whatever it is you're drinking and let's dive in. everyone we wanted to pop in before we continue with the episode and update you on a few changes to the crime over coffee family we wanted to let you all know that our beautiful and wonderful editor mike will be leaving us at the beginning of next year he's going to be pursuing other life things we wish him nothing but the best he has been easily the best editor we've ever had and we have so much love for him and we thank him so much for helping us out this past year and a half But with that being said, we are going to be having some changes. Yeah, we appreciated Mike so much, but we also really appreciate all of our listeners. Everybody who has supported us from the very first awful episode that we published (laughs) back in 2019, 18, 19, until now, till 2023. We've been doing this podcast for four and a half years, which is absolutely insane. And so we appreciate all of you guys so much for listening and for sticking with us through all the changes that we've already had and hopefully continuing to stick with us through upcoming changes. Yeah, so we we don't want to leave. We don't want to leave you all. We really enjoy doing this. Erica and I love spending time together recording this podcast. And so while we're losing our editor, we're going to try to keep it going. But Again, we're losing an editor and Erica and I are not the most tech savvy people. So we are going to continue recording, but it's going to be cut down to probably one or two episodes a month. They'll still be released on Thursdays and it's likely going to be a little bit looser of a format just to ease the lift that our, again, lovely editor has been (laughs) working through. So it's going to be a little different, a little bit more conversational, but we're still going to provide you with some great crime content yeah i'm gonna do my best with the editing skills that i do not have to hopefully give you guys something to work with here some sort of good content but i also wanted to update you guys on our patreon if you are already a patreon member or if you have ever wanted to join we're still gonna leave it up we are gonna make changes to it though we're not gonna do our bonus episodes at this time not saying that could never happen but at this current moment in time we're not going to be doing bonus episodes so we're going to switch down to two tiers instead of three so we will have a three dollar a month tier and a five dollar a month tier our seven dollar tier will just go mesh in with the five dollars so the three dollar tier is going to give you all of our episodes on that same thursday ad free the five dollar tier is going to give you all of our episodes ad free one day early 
Plus, you'll get access to all of our previous bonus episodes that have ever been released. So that's kind of a bonus if you have not previously been on our $7 tier. We have got to put those somewhere. And so those are just going to go down to our $5 tier for now. And so you'll get, I don't even know how many extra episodes, at least 24. So bonus episodes. So if you guys want to check out the Patreon and sign up for that, you guys are welcome to do that. If not, that's totally fine. We just hope that you stick with us for these upcoming changes. And we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Heads up, which you heard in the intro, this is a episode about a family. And so there is some violence against children involved. This story takes place in Good Heart, Michigan in 1968. The Robeson family was a family of six that lived in Lathrop Village. This was kind of near Detroit and they had planned on spending their summer at their lake house at the Blisswood Resort and this was on the shore of Lake Michigan. The family consisted of Richard Robeson, who was 42 years old at the time, and he was the dad, married to his wife and mom of their kids, Shirley Robeson, who is 40. And then we have three sons, Richard, 19 years old, Gary, 16, Randall, 12, and then their daughter, Susan, who was seven. Richard had run an advertising agency, and he published a magazine called The Impresario Magazine, and it was about the arts. I'm not sure if it was physical art or musical or a combo but anyway that's what he did as i mentioned they had a lake house it was a cabin that was in the woods basically it was a lakeside home it was kind of up about a half a mile west of lakeshore drive down this twisting road it was pretty secluded it was about 100 feet away from lake michigan but a little ways off the road and you could not see it from the road They did have some neighbors, but they were not immediately close by. They arrived in early June to begin their summer there. And on June 24th, 1968, Richard had visited the home of a neighbor nearby. Apparently they had um, lost their son in a motorcycle accident. And so Richard stopped by and left some money for flowers and to express his condolences. At this point, he also told this man that his family would probably be leaving for a trip for a few weeks to Kentucky, and they were looking to purchase a property, and they had also said they probably would return sometime in July. This brings us to early July. Somebody had said something about maybe some weird smell, and there was an owner of the Blisswood Resort, and his name was Chauncey Bliss and his son, Monty Bliss. They were the owner and caretaker. So one of them went to check it out. They did see two cars in the drive and they saw a note that said that the family was planning to take a trip, leaving probably around June 25th and would be back around July 7th, July 8th. The person looked under the house and didn't see any animals or anything. And he noticed that there were some bullet holes in the window, but he just assumed that it was from the kids because he'd seen them with pellet guns. I don't know how I feel about this person's thought process. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. It's one of those, like, you never expect anything bad. And then, like, hindsight's twenty twenty. This sounds super sketchy. I, I agree. However, if I'm also thinking about it, the barn at my parents' house had all the windows shot out, had like bowl holes in mm-hmm. it because my brother had shot them all out for fun with his friends. And that is 
100% what this gentleman was thinking. I mean, they've got three boys and a young girl. It's not too far-fetched to think they were doing something stupid like that. Or for things to just be kind of disheveled or destroyed in general, even if it wasn't bullet holes. They chalk it up to nothing and time passes on. And at some point, a little bit later on, and this would be in July, so July 22nd, there was a group that had gathered a nearby cabin and they were actually having a bridge party, which I just thought was adorable, like the card game bridge. That's so fun. Yeah. Uh, you said bridge and I was like, wait, like like what kind of bridge? But like, okay, the game. That sounds like fun. <laughs> but as they're sitting there, they realize they're like smelling something weird, sm- smelling something rotten maybe. And they were pretty sure it was coming from a nearby cabin, which happened to be under ownership of a Robeson family. And they hadn't seen them in a while. They knew that they were going out of town. Everybody kind of did, so they didn't think much of it. But at this point, they're like, well, something's up there. Someone needs to go check it out. Now they call the caretaker and they go up there. I'm not sure which, if it's the father or son, but they go up there and they're knocking on the door and they're getting no response. And he had a key, so he entered So he actually goes in the house and he pretty quickly sees a woman's body like sprawled out in the entryway and catches a glimpse of some other bodies laying on the floor with blood. And so he's like, all right, I'm out of here. And he goes and calls the police. So I assume when this other man was at the house, he did not look inside the windows at all that were busted. He was in the the house. The first man. Oh, the first time. No, I don't think so. the, the, The first man didn't. He just noticed the bolt holes and walked off. Okay. Yeah. I will say that uh, it, it comes up a little later, but the windows were covered with cardboard where the bullet holes were, which would make sense if you were waiting to repair it. Anyway, as I mentioned, he sees these bodies and he goes and contacts the police. Police arrive to the scene and they find that there were the bodies of all of the Robeson family and they were found in different rooms of the house Shirley's body was in the living room and she was covered by a blanket and that is who Bliss saw when he first went in there. They see three bodies in the hallway and then two more discovered in a bedroom. When they approach the cabin, as I said before, the curtain, some of the curtains were drawn and some of the bullet holes had cardboard over them. Additionally, the side door so the front door was locked and he was able to go in but the side door was locked with a padlock additionally when they went inside they saw that there was only one suitcase that was partially packed which they thought was weird since the family said they were going to be planning a trip and they also found food in the home and cards on the table this next part is what was found as a result of the autopsy and what they found in the cottage They determined that the family had likely been killed 27 days prior to July 22nd. So they had been in there for a while. Yeah. So that was almost to the day of when they told, like, he said that they were going to be leaving. Or to the day. When he told the friends that they were going to be going to Kentucky. Yeah, it was um, shortly, it was right around there. So Shirley was found on her stomach in the living room and a blanket was covering her body. She had been shot in the head with a 24... with a 25 caliber slug. Richard was found lying on the floor in the hallway 
and he had been shot in the head with a 25 caliber slug as well. He also had skull fractures and evidence of blunt force trauma. And then they also found that he had been shot with a 22 caliber slug. They believe that he was initially shot in the chest with the 22 caliber and then shot in the head with the other gun. I'm trying to decide if he was the main target of this or if he, the overkill was just because he was the main like protector or yeah. the big person they needed to take out. And I'll get a little bit more into the kind of idea of how this all played out too after I get through the where their bodies were found and their manners of death. So Richard, who was a 19 year old, was found in the northwest bedroom and partially in the hallway and partially in the bedroom. And he had had multiple gunshot wounds to the head linked to that 25 caliber. Gary, who is the 16 year old son, was lying on his back along the east wall of the north of the northwest bedroom and had two gunshot wounds to the head linked to that 25 caliber. And then there's evidence that he also got shot in the back with the 22 caliber. Randall, who was the 12 year old boy, was found lying right by his father and he had been covered up with a rug that was in there and he had died from a gunshot wound to the head. No bullet was recovered, so they weren't sure which one it was, though. And then Susan, the daughter, was found on her back in the hallway near her father, and she had been shot in the head with a 25 caliber. And she also had a skull fracture, which was possibly from a claw hammer that was found at the scene. From all this, investigators, they think that somebody probably shot through the cottage window with the rifle and then had come in to kind of finish off the murders. They believe that the murders began with five gunshots that were aimed towards Richard, fired through the rear window, and then they went into the went in through the cabin with the door that was probably unlocked and killed the remaining people with the other gun. And then additionally, as I mentioned, Susan and Richard were hit with a hammer that was found at the scene. It's interesting to note that they believe the gunshots came in with the rifle and then they came in with the other gun. Because when I first was reading through this, I was thinking, well, there's probably two people involved. But when you look at it this way, it is possible that it was just one person. That was my first thought. But you're right. If there were the bullet holes from outside the house, especially if the bullet holes match that of the rifle. And I don't know how far that can get like the analysis of that can get can they determine that it was a rifle gun like they went through there but it doesn't make sense i assume possibly because of the longer range of it maybe i mean i'm not a ballistics person but they came to that conclusion so i'll roll with whatever they say because i don't know shit (laughs) but obviously it sounds like the dad was possibly the biggest target but again you have to look at the fact that the daughter also got hit with the hammer and not to mention it's one thing to be targeting a person but then to kill the entire family who was just there and this is six people that's a lot especially because it's children it wasn't like they had to take out everybody else in the family because they were a threat to them right it was they went in there with a purpose and they just brutally murdered an entire family. They were interviewing people around who said that 
you know, like neighbors and stuff, saying they remembered hearing raised voices and gunshots coming from that area at the time, but that, quote, they thought it was someone shooting seagulls on the beach. And I was just like, I don't think that happens. So confused that there was not any more concerned, I guess. I don't know. It depends. Is it normal for gunshots to be shot off there? Is that a typical thing that happens? And so if it is, like, my parents live in the middle of nowhere. And anytime I'm over there and you hear a gunshot, you don't think twice. Yeah. Well, and sure. So maybe it's that. It's rural Michigan. I don't think it's probably that abnormal. I think part of it, too, was just it was unfortunate timing and circumstances that they had told some people they were going to be leaving town. And so people just really didn't think anything of it. How many people knew they were leaving town? Because it sounded like quite a few people in the area did, which would be an ideal time to murder them because, you know, people aren't looking for them. Right. I mean, from what I understand, it seems like one of those communities where every summer people go up there and stay. So I'm guessing a lot of them knew each other. So I'm not sure exactly how many people knew, but they also had that note on their front door. So literally anybody could have known. With all this, they start looking into the lives of this family to see if there's anybody who would want to harm them. When investigators are looking into this crime, they do find somebody with a possible motive. And this is Joseph Scalaro III. He had worked for Richard Robeson for his company since 1965. He also was known as a pretty smart person who was a former military sharpshooter and something had happened that might point to a motive. Basically, to be fair, oh. Joseph already sounds suspicious. Mm-hmm. But give the motive. When they look into it, they realize that he had been embezzling money from the business and it ended up being about $60,000 at the time, which today is equivalent to $140,000 give or take. That's a good chunk of change. Yeah. Especially for only being there for three years. Did he, he I mean, you'd only worked there for three years. I just feel like that's a lot to pull out, especially I, the company had to have been making quite a bit of money not to notice right away that that much was missing. Well, from what oh. it sounds like, it was occurring shortly after the family went away for the summer. Oh, so it wasn't occurring the three years, whole three years he worked there. Just Mm -hmm. after the family disappeared. All right, Mr. Joseph, you're under arrest. So Joseph had taken three lie detector tests. Two of them he failed. One was inconclusive. And he gave an alibi for the night of the murder. However, when investigators looked into it, they couldn't substantiate it. What Joseph had said is that he had talked to his boss on the phone. um, And this would have been on June 25th. And this was apparently Richard asking him if some company checks had arrived. Police kind of theorized that at this point, Joseph had given himself a large raise. And that's how he got the money and had written on some pre-signed checks that Richard had left to run the business while he was gone. And they also find out that Joseph, the day when they believe the murders happened, had been out of contact with friends, business associates, and family for 12 hours, and they couldn't find anybody to support his alibi that he was where he said he was that day. Yeah, he he sounds incredibly suspicious. Right. 
And so another thing they find is that there are shell casings that were left at the crime scene and bullets, right? And they also found a bloody footprint. When they're looking into Joseph, they find that the footprint matched some shoes he had and that he had liked to go to this specific shooting range that was at, I can't remember where, it was someone he knew, his family's, someone in his family's house, I think. And they go and check out the area with metal detectors and they find shell casings and they turn them into the crime lab and they match the ones that were found at the scene of the crime. They also learn that he owns guns that appear to match the type of guns that were used to kill the family. Does he have an explanation for all this? Because he sounds like the kind of guy that would come up with some BS something or other. Apparently not, but there's something else that happens with this case that is interesting. Great. I was worried you were going to give me a, put a kink in our plan here or the story. Let me ask you this, Erica. If you are the detective on this case... You find all this information, Mm -hmm. these linkages, this evidence. You take it to the prosecution. What do you expect the prosecution to do? Um, Put out a warrant for his arrest? Yeah. Charge him, right? Yeah. Let me guess. They did nothing. They went home and went to sleep. Had dinner with their families. So they... In 1970, the prosecutor at the time was like, Hey, I'm not bringing charges through this. And this was... Don Noggle, who was a prosecutor at the time, who supposedly, quote, had the backing of a similarly penny-pinching county board, end quote. Basically, they knew it was going to be an expensive trial and they didn't want to pay for it. And that's what they believe happened. Are you kidding me? Right. It was one of those things. There were some interviews with investigators at the time where everyone's like, we're pretty sure this guy did it, but they couldn't get the county to charge them. Pretty sure. What other evidence do they need? I know. So it was... Other than an actual confession. (laughs) It was definitely kind of problematic, still is problematic. And one of those things where, you know, and I don't think it would happen today. I don't know the process, but in 1968, it happened. In... 1973, however, a new prosecutor's coming in, Ron Kovalt, and he's looking to bring charges. And they've got all this... Oh, so we we have a prosecutor who's willing to prosecute now? Yes, believe it or not. Weird. Crazy how that works. As this is all happening, word kind of gets out, like rumblings get out that this is moving forward. And... Shortly before the authorities planned to request the charges for six counts of first degree murder, Joseph Scalaro committed suicide. This was in March of 1973. So that guilt was really eating him up there, I see. Well, yeah. And interestingly, the gun he killed himself with is a 25 caliber, and it's the one that links to the gun second gun that was used to murder the family that's not at all suspicious does this go anywhere else well i do have one more thing to tell you he left a suicide note oh what did our friend joseph have to say so basically in the note he left a note outside the door where it happened i think to his mom telling her to go get someone else but Anyway, he said in this note, part of it was on a typewriter and part was written. But here's what he says. Where do I start? I am a liar, cheat, phony. Any check that any of the people have with your signature isn't any good because I forged your name to it to get them off my back. I owe everybody you can think of. 
I have made poor investments and in some cases, no investments at all. And then he goes on to discuss some of the people and list some of the people that he took money from and have hurt, apologizing. Then he says, I just can't help myself. Please understand. P.S. I had nothing to do with the Robesons. I'm a cheat, but I'm not a murderer. I am sick and scared. God and everyone, please forgive me. I hope my family will understand. It's actually pretty sad. Yeah. So he's claiming his innocence in the role of the murders. I just wonder if it was to clear his name as he died. Because it's one thing to admit to, you know, taking money and embezzling money. But it's a whole other thing to admit to murdering a family of six, even in your death. Yeah. Part of me wonders if he was trying to, like, help out his mom by her not getting the scrutiny of admitting to it. That's completely understandable. Which I guess thanks for the selfless act sort of question mark at the end i don't i don't know how to like feel because obviously suicide's not okay and it's sad when anybody commits suicide but with this guy now there's all these questions still left of was he actually the one that murdered this family and i you may tell me something different but i'm going to just make an educated guess here and say probably not going to give me any answers yeah a lot of people Um, over the years are pretty sure he's the guy. There have been some other theories that float around about it being somebody different. However, unfortunately, with his death also died the closure of this case. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepot at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.